Meg Rossoff is a successful American novelist who came to England originally as a student. Meg explains to Michael Barclay how she came to live in London and how she met her husband and how she came to write her first novel. Meg Rossoff waited till she was 45 to write her first novel, How I Live Now, the story of a passionate love affair between young teenage cousins set against the background of global war. It changed her life, selling a million copies and becoming a film starring Saoirse Ronan. She gave up a series of unfulfilling jobs in advertising and reinvented herself as a writer. Over the last 16 years, she's published eight more novels, as well as eight books for younger readers, including four about McTavish the Rescue Dog. I just felt instantly that I wanted to come back and live in London. I said, I am coming back here. And it took me 10 years to get back, but I came back 10 years later for three months to see if it would work out, and that was 32 years ago. I think the bit of the B minor mass uh, that you've chosen is a celebration not only of the music, but of someone quite close to you. Well, well I've chosen the Gloria. Uh, I had my first and only child when I was 40, and it took us six weeks to name her, which I now consider completely eccentric. But at the time, my husband said, well, we can't just give her a name. Maybe she won't like it. Maybe we should just wait until she's old enough to choose a name. Anyway, he's quite eccentric himself. <laughs> um, and then finally, a friend of ours suggested Gloria. And my mother said, you can't name her Gloria. It will ruin her life. <laughs> Very supportive. And um, I always say that she was named after the B minor mass, Gloria, because I found it completely transcendent. But I think my husband considers her named after the Van Morrison, Gloria, or possibly the, the Patti Smith one. from the Mass in B minor by Bach, with Jonathan Cohen directing Arcangelo. Music which first brought you to England, Meg Rosoff, but as you said, it was several years before you came back for good, and the initial reason was a friend's party, and that sparked another chain of life-changing events, beginning with a hat. Oh, my God, the hat. Yes, it was actually... It wasn't the party that got me back. It was, I, I, like every other 20-something in New York in the 80s, I was seeing a therapist. And for three years, I'd been going on 
really boringly saying, I really want to move back to London, but I can't get a work permit. What will I do? You know, and finally, I think she just got sick of hearing me go on about it. And she said, look, go to London. If it doesn't work out, you can always come back. And I hadn't really ever kind of considered that life could actually double back on itself. Well, of course, usually it doesn't. Anyway, I quit my job. I decided I was going to go over to London three months, see how it worked out. And a friend said, well, why don't you come in time for my birthday party? And the day before I left New York, I went to a designer warehouse sale and I thought I'd get a fabulous shirt or a jacket or some wonderful thing to wear to this party. And just by the door, there was a woman selling hats. And, I, you know, I've never worn a hat in my life. I still don't wear hats. But, you know, there is that irresistible kind of pull to try on a hat. So I tried on a hat and I looked in the mirror and I thought, God, this looks great. But I looked at the price tag. It was $75. I was saving my money in case I couldn't get a, a job. And this woman, which is very, I mean, it sounds magic, but it it is very typical in New York. This older woman came up to me and she said, honey, you look fabulous in that hat. <laughs> and I said, I do, don't I? And uh, I said, but I'm not going to buy it. It's too expensive. And she said, honey, buy the hat. It'll change your life. <laughs> so, well, you know, what's a girl to do? So I did buy the hat and I wore it to the party the following day. And an extremely adorable man came up to me and said, I saw you standing there in that hat and I had to meet you. Anyway, so uh, we were together pretty much from that night on and we're still together 32 years later and he's the love of my life. So she was right. It changed my life. He's the painter, Paul He's Hamlin. the painter. Uh, well, it's a bit of a fairy tale, really, or even a novel, if you were writing it. Would you believe it was true? What would the moral be, I wonder? Always wear a hat. Yes, well, you know, the thing is, my, my daughter says I've tyrannised her life by having these extreme dramatic stories in my past. And I sometimes wonder whether they're true. I mean, I was terrorised by that idea as a child because my mother used to say, you know, when you're old enough, the moment will be right and you will meet the man of your dreams. And there was this sense that there was only one. And I became utterly obsessed with the idea that he would be at the corner store and I would be, you know, needing a pint of milk. And then at the last minute, I think, ah, forget it. I'll drink the coffee black and then never <laughs> meet the man of my dreams. And it is... Oddly enough, well, and not so oddly, that that idea of fate and chance is something that really has come into my writing quite a lot. I said at the beginning, Meg Rosoff, that you were 45 before you wrote your first novel, How I Live Now, and it came out of another life-changing event, one of considerable sadness and loss, didn't it? Yes, it did. Um, my sister was diagnosed with cancer when she was 37, um, and she had two little boys, and she died two years later. And I had a, a real vision of my own future. I didn't think I would get cancer, but I thought, well, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, my funeral will be a very depressing affair because everyone will say, well, we thought Meg could have been a writer, but she never managed to do it. I never thought I could be 
a writer because I wasn't special enough, but I could write a pony book. I could write a book about ponies for, you know, 12-year-olds because I was obsessed with them when I was that age and I ran out. So I figured, marketing-wise, you know, there had to be a, a gap in the market for books about ponies. Romping so, ponies. Well, yes, <laughs> you know, quite innocent, you know, the rich girl and the poor girl and, you know, the poor girl wants the beautiful horse and the rich girl has it. You know, they're they're pretty standard. And so I thought I would try. So I sat down and I wrote what I thought was a kind of standard pony book. And I sent it to a friend of a friend of a friend who was an agent just starting her first list. And she said, yes, well, I quite like your writing, but I don't think I can sell quite such a dark uh, pony book with so much sex in it. And that's when I sort of started to think about voice, this idea that, you know, you're trying to write a nice, happy little book about a, you know, a girl and her and her pony, and you end up with this kind of very dark, you know, sexy, it had uh, rape and police and abortion. I mean, it was a, a, a big tangle of a book. And anyway, she said, why don't you try something else? And that's when I wrote How I Live Now. When you describe your sister's death, it does make sense to me, having read the book, because I was struck by the fact that it's absolutely suffused by yearning and loss. And at the end of the book, the heroine has to remake her life, just indeed as you did.
Kenneth Stephen is a poet who used to live in Dunkeld, and he's been on this programme many times. Kenneth explores why people are drawn to poetry in times of crisis. Today, Kenneth looks at Daffodils by Ted Hughes, read by Jonathan Keeble. The story of the great poets Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath is one that has been sifted time and time again. Theirs was a passionate love affair that ignited when the two met as students at Cambridge. It burned for a time during a short and stormy marriage before Hughes left, having begun a new relationship. Not long after, Sylvia Plath committed suicide. Ted Hughes was always blamed for her death. He was seen as callous, as having abandoned her to her own inner demons, her depression and the bringing up of their two infant children alone. Much of that was true. What was not, most assuredly not, was that Hughes did not suffer over what he had done. Over the many years that followed, he chiselled away at poems remembering Sylvia. This was his final gift to her. Yet it was always a search for healing, for his own inner healing. I think Daffodils is perhaps the most beautiful of all the poems in the volume that became Birthday Letters. It is the intimacy of his voice, talking to her as though she is still there, taking her hand to return to the place where once, together, they were so poor and yet, even if they did not see it, so blessed. It is a love poem written long after death has separated them, and it reaches out the long, deep scar of death to dare to touch it with the most infinite tenderness. It would seem a place where no healing is possible, yet a deep, sacred and beautiful healing is brought to life through the creation of a poem. Remember how we picked the daffodils? Nobody else remembers, but I remember. Your daughter came with her armfuls, eager and happy, helping the harvest. She has forgotten. She cannot even remember you. And we sold them. It sounds like sacrilege, but we sold them. Were we so poor? Old Stoneman, the grocer, boss-eyed, his blood pressure purpling to beetroot. It was his last chance. He would die in the same great freeze as you. He persuaded us. Every spring he always bought them, sevenpence a dozen, a custom of the house. Besides, we still weren't sure we wanted to own anything. Mainly we were hungry to convert everything to profit. Still nomads, still strangers to our whole possession. The daffodils were incidental gilding of the deeds. Treasure trove. They simply came, and they kept on coming as if not from the sod, but falling from heaven. Our lives were still arrayed on our own good luck. We knew we'd live forever. We had not learned what a fleeting glance of the everlasting daffodils are, never identified the nuptial flight of the rarest ephemera, our own days. We thought they were a windfall, never guessed they were a last blessing. So we sold them. We worked at selling them as if employed on somebody else's flower farm. You bent at it in the rain of that April. Your last April. We bent there together, among the soft shrieks of their jostled stems, the wet shock shaken of their girlish dance frocks, fresh 
opened dragonflies, wet and flimsy, opened too early. We piled their frailty lights on a carpenter's bench, distributed leaves among the dozens, buckling blade leaves, limber, groping for air, zinc silvered, propped their raw butts in bucket water, their oval, meaty butts, and sold them, sevenpence a bunch. Wind wounds, spasms from the dark earth with their odourless metals, a flamy purification of the deep grave's stony cold, as if ice had a breath. We sold them to wither. The crop thickened faster than we could thin it. Finally, we were overwhelmed and we lost our wedding present scissors. Every March since, they have lifted again, out of the same bulbs, the same baby cries from the thaw, ballerinas too early for music, shiverers in the drafty wings of the year. On that same groundswell of memory, fluttering, they return to forget you stooping there, behind the rainy curtains of a dark April, snipping their stems. But somewhere your scissors remember, wherever they are. Here, somewhere, blades wide open, April by April, sinking deeper through the sod. An anchor, a cross of rust. Christ has no body now but yours. Hannah Fry talks to Jim Al-Khalili 
about why she likes mathematics and about some of the big influences on her life. You can hear the whole interview on The Life Scientific on BBC Sounds. It's a big, you know, it's, maths is broad. It's not just numbers, right? So, you know, so, you know, yeah. so what is it that really fires you up? I mean, in fact, it's almost, for me, it's almost, <laughs> it's almost never numbers. Right. Um, I think for me, it's an experience that you can't describe fully in words. It's something that you will only know what I'm talking about if you've had the same experience. Andrew Wales, he, uh, the guy who sold Fermat's last theorem, he uh, once described doing mathematics and particularly looking for a solution to Fermat's last theorem as though he was like traveling through hedgerow and you know like going through bramble and then suddenly he turned a corner and realized that actually he'd been exploring this perfectly manicured garden and everything was there perfectly in place he just hadn't realized it and I just think that's the best possible description of what it's like to do mathematics you're not inventing stuff you're not creating stuff you are genuinely on this voyage of discovery in a world that has been constructed from logical ideas. And I just think there's something so remarkably beautiful about that. I, I think a lot of people probably fail to appreciate just how uplifting. I mean, it's, even people talk about it being a spiritual experience doing mathematics. Yeah. It's the same, the same in areas of physics as well, you know. it's Yeah, I mean, you must have the same thing, Jim, when you're playing mm. with equations. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like seeing Absolutely. stuff that's already there. Um, I think also the other thing about it being, you know, almost a spiritual experience in part is because it's so frustrating. <laughs> like I'm describing the glory and the glory feels very sweet because there's so much pain, like so much pain along the way. And I think um, <laughs> a very good friend of mine, Matt Parker, who's a, a, another mathematician, he always says, um, that the key difference between people who are mathematicians and not mathematicians, it isn't that uh, mathematicians find it easy. It's that mathematicians enjoy how hard it is. And right. I, I really, I love that idea because <laughs> I think it's totally true. It's like the struggle is part of the process because it makes that moment of discovery, that turning the corner and realising you're in a manicured, perfectly beautiful garden. Um, it makes it all the sweeter. I mean, it's a bit masochistic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, but a lot of people will recognise this, you know, if you're doing a Sudoku puzzle or a crossword or a jigsaw puzzle. Again, you don't want it to be too easy. You know, no. part of the challenge is to, to push yourself. Oh, it's the process, Jim. It's definitely the process. <laughs> well, I, I know a few years ago you suggested that everyone working in the tech industry should take an ethical pledge, you know, <laughs> rather like the Hippocratic Oath for, for, for doctors. Um, I wonder, have you ever said no to a piece of work on ethical grounds or maybe challenge your colleagues directly about the possible undesirable uses to which their algorithms could be put? <laughs> Such a good question. I've definitely seen lots of stuff that's made me raise my eyebrow. There's one in particular, actually. This is um, mm. maybe 2018. Um, I was at a conference in America, a policing conference, and um, there were all sorts of academics there, like criminologists and mathematicians and so on. And this uh, guy who was like very high up in the police force came in to give a talk. And he was like, what I want from all of you, I want you to create me an algorithm that can tell me who is going to commit a crime next. I want you to tell me this person is going to commit a crime on this day so I can go and knock on their door and stop them from doing it. 
Isn't that Tom Cruise film? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It's like, I don't, you know, no. Like, no. Um, yeah, so I've definitely heard lots of things like that. But however much you, you say, OK, academics should have this code of conduct, we should start teaching ethics to young mathematicians and computer scientists to make sure that some of the big mistakes of the past aren't made again. However much you do that, however much you ask technology companies to regulate themselves, you know, it's like the old game theory thing, right? Like you can't live in a world of purely altruistic people without simultaneously mm. creating a massive advantage for somebody who's very selfish to come in and sort of take over. It's just... It's, it's it's why you need regulation. It's, it, it, yeah, I think that's yeah. the big lesson. What if your mum hadn't been on your case to work so hard when you were a girl? How much of a difference would that have made? Oh, that's life? everything. I think that's absolutely everything. I think... Um, I don't think you can understate just how dramatic the impact that a parent who is really pushing for education as a, a kind of means to improve your life. I think that is so, so important. You know, she sat with us every single day and just in a way that I, I you know, I don't have the patience for. I could never do with my children what she managed to do with us. It's really extraordinary, the kind of gift that she gave all of us to love learning, to be insatiably curious about the world around us and just to not be frightened or intimidated of the amount of knowledge that is out there, but instead see it as this, this, this glorious adventure that you can go and participate in. I noticed that you dedicated your book to your mum, Mari Fry, for never taking no for an answer. Am I to deduce from this that you've forgiven her for, for those days when you probably wanted to be out with your friends when she made you sit down with them, those maths workbooks, even though you were coming regularly top of your class and probably didn't need all that work? Forgiven her any day now, Jim. Any day now. <laughs> and presumably she doesn't tell you anymore that you have to try harder. Are you joking me? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> really? Yeah, she'll come round my house. Um, and I'll be like, I'll be doing some work. And uh, and then I'll like maybe nip downstairs for lunch and probably spend a little bit too long making a sandwich. And she'll be like, what are you doing? Go back on go do more work. Oh, she's, she's relentless, this woman. Relentless. <laughs> Goodness me. <laughs> I'm a professor of maths, Mum. Come on. <laughs> yeah, give it a rest. I've made it. Well, Hannah Fry, dare I say, the human face of mathematics, thank you very much for sharing your life science. Oh, thank you for having me, Jim. It's been so much fun. <laughs>